0: Some of you have already heard, but we already are going on some new stations. I don't want to announce them for sure, but it looks like we're going on three or four new stations in the near future, besides those we've already announced. And Mr. Ames and I approved a couple new ones just yesterday afternoon, but I don't know if they're nailed down yet, so I'd better not announce them until we know for sure. But God is blessing the work. We are moving ahead, and there's every indication, brethren, for many different things that we are poised For doing the biggest work by far we have ever done, just in the next couple of years. Things are coming together. We've had more unity here at headquarters. We have more unity in the field. You could just feel it up there. And certainly we feel it here. Many have commented on how that's uh, come over here. So we're very grateful, and thank you all for your part in that. We're going to have increased power. This world needs what we have to give. This world is really sick. Right now, as you may have heard, that Governor Jerry Brown, out in California, has already approved a bill that will force the schools to let young boys and girls be in the same shower bath together if the boy claims he's bisexual, or the girl does, or transsexual, or whatever term they use. They can end up with that kind of thing, and that's going to expose increasing tens of thousands of young people to that kind of thing, plus the whole movement toward you know homosexuality a same-sex marriage, free sex, everything they can do to drive down the morals of the nation and to destroy the, the family that God intended. us. A family is such a wonderful thing, and God intended that. And God intended there be the love between a man and a woman. That's what God wants. His very first command, he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. But when people twist that all around and mess that all up, That is under the guidance guidance usually of Satan the devil, and they don't understand that. But that's what Satan is doing to bring this nation down, and that is speeding up, as we all know. Today, brethren, I want to get back to something I started about five or six weeks ago. Several of you mentioned you really enjoyed it. So once in a while, I'm going to digress from the normal preaching form that we use, and I normally use too, giving a subject, but to explain one of the epistles of Paul. I had the opportunity to teach the epistles of Paul for about thirty years in Ambassador College. I introduced it into the curriculum, and that I found on the baptizing tours that that part of the Bible was the one people asked about more than ever. As the apostle Peter said, Paul wrote many things hard to be understood, and people somehow twist that, and they don't understand parts of the apostles' writing, the epistles of Paul. So let me go into that. So please do get your Bible. Follow me more than usual. Just go along and try to think, how could I explain this to others? You say, I've heard this before. Well, you may not have heard it this thoroughly. But how could you explain this to someone else? You're always to be ready to give an answer to others of the faith that is in you. So hopefully I can help you really understand this epistle. I covered Philippians last time. I'm going to cover Colossians today excuse me, Colossians, because it has some so-called difficult parts. So let's clear that up today in this explanation. I was telling Mr. Davis the other day that I had 32 weeks, which would be 96 class periods to go through the epistles of Paul in the college, because you had two semesters of 16 weeks of class each one. But now in a sermon like this, I have to cover each book in 40. Not 45 minutes, but an hour and 15 minute sermon. So we do have to move a little more rapidly than I would in class. And I hope you understand that, but I will try to make it very clear and I hope very helpful to you. Turn with me, first of all, let's get a little background. First of all, the epistle of, to the Colossians was written about 61 or 62 A.D. Let's say 61 A.D. from Rome. You can look up in commentaries, there are various speculations, but nearly every sensible commentator realizes it must have been Rome from all the indications that was written from Paul's imprisonment, and it was written during the time he was doing the things that he talks about here in this letter from Rome. And it was written right along with Ephesians and Philippians. They all have some of the same themes. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians were all written about the same period of time from Paul's imprisonment at Rome. The immediate occasion for the letter, and I think it's good that you know that, what prompted Paul to write the letter at this time? Well, he was always writing letters to the churches he raised up, but there is usually a specific situation, and the situation here, and I think I made a mistake this time by not putting in my markers, I just put in little pieces of paper rather than One, two, three across the top. So I'll have to flip around a little bit more. But in Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 7, he talks about how Epaphras, uh, their fellow servant, declared to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul had not personally known the Colossians. He was told about them and undoubtedly told about the problem they had. And, of course, back in chapter, uh, as you read about it also, in, in chapter 2 and verse 8, in chapter 2 and verse 8, he said, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. So they were into a pagan, paganized type of religion. Some of them were getting into Gnosticism and early early form of Gnosticism, as some of the commentaries explain, which is a mixture of some Jewish ideas but mainly pagan ideas. And so Paul had to write them to help clear this up. That was the immediate reason he wrote this letter and commented on these things. I would like to say this, though, as background. Brethren, I think you all know this, but some of you may not know it or it may not be fixed in your mind. Please study this for yourself. If I had time, I'd explain it. But Paul was a... A rabbi, he had been a rabbi. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, and the book of Acts certainly indicates that. He cast his vote as a member of the Sanhedrin in the stoning of Stephen. And so he was a very highly trained man, trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a Jew, and Paul indicates throughout the, his whole life, as I think you all know, he kept the Sabbath, the holy days, and so on. He certainly was talking as a Jew. He would not talk about some idea of God being pagan or being philosophy. That's crazy. And yet some of these crazy liberal Protestant commentators try to read that in here. We'll see that. But Paul did not think that way. That was not his background at all. So we'll see that as we go along. But Paul was one who honored the law of God, honored the Ten Commandments, and remember, brethren, Jesus Christ himself, of course, kept the commandments, setting us an example. So let's start into the book itself. Last time, as you remember Philippians, I had to go into high gear the last couple chapters to finish, so I'll try to, I'll try to not waste too much, not spend too much time, I should say, not waste, but spend too much time on the first couple chapters, but I'll have to spend some time at the last part of chapter 2. Here it is, Paul, an apostle. And, of course, the Greek word means one cent, apostle, one cent bearing authority. That was the highest rank in the ministry which God describes back in Ephesians chapter 4. Christ set some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers in that order. Christ puts those into the church. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. He included Timothy in the greetings occasionally. He didn't just hold himself way up here, and he was the only one writing to the saints of faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. So he was writing to Colossae, and notice he writes to the saints. And as you read these chapters and these books, you read that Paul talks about all of the brethren, all of the converted brethren, being saints. The Catholic Church has all this rigmarole where they try to choose a saint. That's not biblical. The Bible talks about every single true Christian. The word saint means holy. Everyone who has God's Spirit residing in him is holy. You're all saints out here if you're converted and have God's Spirit. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I comment on that, brethren, because that is a greeting at the end, at the beginning of nearly every letter of the Apostle Paul. What is significant about it? He mentions God the Father and Jesus Christ. If the Holy Spirit is a person, this would be a gross, absolute insult to the Holy Spirit. He never, never, ever mentions the Holy Spirit in these greetings. He talks about God the Father and Jesus Christ. How come the Holy Spirit is always left out? Because the Holy Spirit is not, I repeat, is not a person. The Holy Spirit is not one of the persons in God's family. It's it's a wonderful, magnificent thing, the very nature and character of God. But when he's talking about the personalities in the family of God, he never, ever mentions the Holy Spirit. We give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. So Paul was a man of prayer. Mr. Ames is going to give the program tomorrow on prayer And I think all of you know how terribly important that is. We walk with God. And one way we walk with God is by reading and studying and literally feeding on Christ and having his mind in us. And the other major way we do is by praying, lifting up holy hands, as Paul says, without wrath and doubting. Every day lifting up our hands to God. And if you could get in a room where you could pray privately and do that, or even try to pray by a window, which I prefer, if I can, to look out at the sky, God is up there in heaven. If you bend over all the time, you're not necessarily wrong. you sometimes in an in place, or sometimes you get tired. You have to bend over. But pray to God. Realize it's our Father who art in heaven. So anyway, he prayed constantly for these people since we heard it shows here he did not know them personally. He, we heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. The hope is in heaven. A lot of Protestants say, there it is, there it is, we're all going to heaven. Hallelujah. <laughs> no, it doesn't say that. The hope is laid up for you in heaven. And as it says back in Philippians chapter 1, as we covered when we went through Philippians chapter 1, And verse, uh, no, I think I'm looking, wait a minute, going ahead too fast here. Well, I think it's actually chapter 2, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 20, I suppose is what I'm looking for here. anyway it talks about our chapter 3 i know talks about uh, chapter 3 verse 20 says our citizenship is in heaven philippians 3:20 from which let's say we go there from which we also eagerly wait for the savior the lord jesus christ so he's coming from heaven and as you look back in second corinthians if you want to turn back to second corinthians chapter 5 this is Second Corinthians, chapter 5. It kind of explains this aspect of things, too. He says in verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, in other words, this tabernacle, it can be translated, and is so by some, this human body, this human body is destroyed. Our body decays when we are dying. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We have a body that God is preparing for us in the heavens, a spiritual body. Then say, there it is again. We go to heaven. No, read on. Just keep reading. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. That is one way to understand the epistles of Paul and all of the Bible. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is where? From not in, but from heaven. For if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent won't burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. We don't want to die and be nothing, but we want to be clothed upon. We want to be swallowed up by life. So anyway, it's the heavenly body from heaven, not in heaven. So you've got to let all these scriptures be put together to understand that, along, of course, with John chapter 3, verse 13. John 3, verse 13, where Jesus said, No man has ascended to heaven except Christ who came down from heaven. So it's important to get these references so you can understand and you can uh, stop the mouths of those who try to twist these scriptures by reading just part of them and not really understand them. So your hope is laid up in heaven. God is preparing our reward up there, but Christ is going to bring it back here, our spiritual body. Then we'll be given a spirit body from heaven, which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Brethren, in this church, we happen to have the truth. I didn't think it up. Mr. Ames didn't think it up. None of us here thought it up. And even Mr. Armstrong didn't think it up. God gave it through his word And Mr. Armstrong was ordained by a branch of the Church of God in Oregon. And the Church of God, which had come right down from the apostles, had many of the basic truths. They understood that the kingdom was to be here on earth. They knew it was not up in heaven. They knew about the Sabbath. and They knew about the law of clean and unclean meats and many things. They didn't understand the holy days. They talked about them but misunderstood them. But they were given that the pillar, the church, is the pillar of God, the pillar of truth, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And Mr. Armstrong learned the basics from them, and then through God's Spirit, he added to it, built upon that, and then we got most of that from him, and we're very grateful for that. The truth is precious. And boy, you step right out, as you know, anywhere in this this whole city. And practically no one outside this room understands it. They don't get it. God is not calling them. We're not smarter. He just is not calling them yet. He will call them later. When they read this, it's just blah, 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 blah. It's all Greek to them. They don't get it. So anyway, let's understand that and appreciate the calling to the truth. The truth is a powerful thing which has come to you as it has in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it also is among you. Says today, you heard and knew the grace of God in truth about God's grace, God's tremendous mercy to call us out and to help us be members of His family. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, this young man who came to them, Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, he came from them to help Paul who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras declared to them about Colossae, no doubt told them about this heresy that was going on there. And then right after that, Paul writes this letter. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. You see, continual prayer. He prayed, prayed for those churches he was directly working with. We pray for you. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We have to have beyond just mere human wisdom, we've got to have spiritual understanding to be thinks like God thinks, to really understand what's going on. Do you connect the dots? Do you connect the dots? I think most of you do in this church, but when you read about the homosexual marriages, they're increasing. When you read about Jerry Brown's proclamation, putting all the kids together in the same shower bath or whatever. When you read about all this stuff that started to happen, the moral decline of American Britain, and then you read over in the Middle East, they're having war. Egypt is absolutely coming apart more than it has at any time in modern times. And a lot of that is no doubt bringing the groundwork for the king of the South. And when you realize the other troubles around the world, when you realize the American economy is in trouble, other nations are going to take over, And we're having terrible drought out west. They had a full article in the Wall Street Journal telling how Lake Mead out there, where about most of the water taking care of Phoenix, Arizona, Las Vegas, Nevada, San Diego, other big cities in the southwest are fed from that great reservoir. That's at almost its lowest point in history. And within two years, they're going to have to have severe, they already have some, they're going to have to have severe water rationing in those areas if they don't get a lot more rain. The handwriting is on the wall. Connect the dots. We turn away from God. We spit in God's face. God turns off the water. We spit in God's face. We begin to have more and more hurricanes. We begin to have more uh, disease epidemics. We begin to have more earthquakes. The human carnal people say, oh, well, that's global warming. Baloney! That's God Almighty who said that 2,000 years ago in detail. That's not some modern thing that Al Gore thought up. It's ridiculous. God is in charge of those things. So you've got to learn to connect the dots. We need to have spiritual understanding that you may have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every work, really serving and helping one another increasing in the knowledge of God and strengthened with all might. So we're to be strengthened with God's Holy Spirit according to his glorious power for all patience long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who is qualified. We don't qualify of ourselves. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but through the sacrifice of Christ which reconciles us to God and through God living in us, Christ living in us through the Holy Spirit, God himself qualifies us. He gives us the strength to honor, to, to honor him and to be worthy of the eternal life in his kingdom. He has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Light always pictures righteousness in God. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. We've been all swallowed up in that. I grew up in that. I didn't understand God. I and all my friends were drinking or cussing or fighting or cheating or doing something bad. We weren't worse than anyone else. A lot of us were in the National Honor Society, but so we were just normal, all-American, carnal young men. We didn't know God. And the young men who were my age then, or I the age I was then, are much worse. Because the whole world is much worse. They're not much worse inherently. They've just grown up in a world that's polluted with the power of darkness. And he's delivered us from this darkness when we're converted and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. We are already begotten members. We're not full members. We are begotten sons of God. Get it? And we are begotten, not yet full members, but begotten members of the kingdom or family of God Right now, if we have God's Spirit, in whom we have redemption through his blood, we're redeemed through blood. Sin is only forgiven through blood, it tells us back in the book of Hebrews several times. And God had them offer blood sacrifices in the Old Testament as a sign of that, a symbol of what the New Testament brings out. It has to be through the blood of Jesus Christ, and we should appreciate so very much what he did for us. The forgiveness of sins... He is the image, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the firstborn of many brethren, it tells us in Romans eight twenty-nine. Turn there, Romans. We are the firstborn of many brethren. Many brethren are going to be born of God, and we, of course, are, are to be born of God. And Christ is the firstborn of many brethren. He is the very image of God totally like God. I want to turn back and catch this part of it when turning to a lot of these references why I guess I need more of these uh, old markers I used to use. But in Hebrews, if you turn to the book of Hebrews, he talks about Jesus Christ through whom he made the worlds, verse 2, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, who being the brightness of his glory... Hebrews 1, verse 3, Christ being the brightness of his glory and the express image, and the Greek reads the stamped impress, like the, the seal of Rome or the picture of the emperor, the picture of the governor, or sometimes stamped right on the coins, you know, just like we have on some of our coins, a stamped impress of George Washington or some great leader. Christ is the stamped impress of his person and holding all things by the word of his power. Christ is the perfect representation of God the Father. We saw that back going through the book of John. If God the Father had come here in person, he would not do anything different from what Christ did. If he had a different human mother, he might have been taller or shorter. He might have had bigger hands or smaller feet or something like that. But his basic approach, his character, everything about him would be the same. The stamped impress, that same being, he and the Father, are one. Christ fully represented God. And brethren, when we read the, about Jesus and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's really encouraging when you think about this, when you read about that young man going here and there up and down the hills and valleys of Galilee and healing the sick. And so I am willing, be thou healed, I am willing, I want to help you, serve you, give to you, give my life for you, that is the one sitting at God's right hand right now. He was here. He was tempted in all points like as we are. He is our God. He is our Savior. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. He's the stamped impress of God the Father, and yet he's up there in heaven now praying for us. So it's wonderful to realize that. So that's what we learn here. And... uh We pray for you that may that, be that strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power. So he goes on to show how we, he is the image, verse 15, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now I'm back on, page, back on verse 16 now of Colossians. For by him all things were created. Well, you all know that, I trust. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and apart from him nothing was made that was made. God made everything, the heavens, the earth, made us male and female, made the beautiful trees, the flowers, the birds, the beautiful wind going through the trees, the beautiful sunrise and sunset, music, every good and beautiful thing, he made it through Christ. Christ is the one who is the instrument who did all this so we can be very grateful for all things were created that are in heaven and earth visible and invisible all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things consist so he was with God the Father from the beginning and he is the head Christ is the head and say he was the head he is Is present active, he is right now the head of his church, the living head of the church. He is the head of the body. He talks about the church being the body. Get this. We'll come to that later. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, he's the firstborn of many brethren, that in all things he might have preeminence. For it pleased the Father in everything. That in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth, things in heaven, having he made peace with the blood. Again, he, he re- reconciles us to God, he makes peace between us and God. We have cut ourselves off from God, and Christ brings us back by his shed blood, by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated, and brethren again, who is he talking to here? The Colossians were Gentiles. He doesn't talk when you read the book of Acts about a a synagogue there, and everything indicates they were overwhelmingly Gentile. So he's talking to people who did not know the law of God. They did not know about the Sabbath before they were converted. They did not know about the holy days. They did not know about clean and unclean meats. They learned that after they came into the church. We'll come to that later. So he said, you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet he is now reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and irreproachable in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith. There's that biggest two-letter word in the English language. If, (laughs) if you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. People often ask, what do you mean? How was the gospel preached to every creature under heaven? Well, there are several instances in the Old Testament and elsewhere that indicate that, but one of the clearest, and I won't take a whole sermon on this, but you turn back to Psalm 19, Psalm 19, And here you begin to see what this is involved, Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The gospel is the good news about the great God, the true God, the creator, that he has a purpose, he has design, he has power. The heavens declare that. They show there's a great mind behind this whole universe, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day and day, utter speech, night unto night, reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language, get this, no speech nor language, where their voice or their message, you could say, the message there is a great God who has power, who has organization, who is working out a plan, their message is not heard. Their line or their direction has gone out through all the earth and their words, again, their message to the end of the world. So that basic message about a creator was given man by God, and God calls man a fool even in the Old Testament if he doesn't know God. He ought to see these things in creation and realize this magnificent creation, these interlocking, overlapping laws and systems and all of nature, demand an organized being. They demand a great mind. This creation demands a creator. So that's the message here. So they had heard this preached all over in that way. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. So here it is again. Christ's body is what? The church. His body is the church. We today, brethren, when Christ was on earth almost 2,000 years ago... He had two hands and two feet and a mouth and so on. So he walked up and down the hills of Galilee and he preached with his mouth. We today become his servants. We're his hands and feet. We're his mouth. And Mr. Ames and I and Dr. Linnell and Mr. Weston and all of our leading men are giving the message around the world. And we are being used by God as part of his mouth, so to speak, to get his message out. We become his body. The church altogether is his body to do his work. So he's saying that here once again in this place, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship, you see, an act of service from which God is, from God who has given it to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery, he talks often about this mystery. Now, he'll come back to it, but I'll just explain it right now, brethren. He doesn't explain the mystery in every place he brings it up. But I did a whole study. In fact, I gave a whole sermon on it. And I don't know, way back in Worldwide, I think I wrote a whole article on it. What is the mystery of God? In one place, he calls it the resurrection. But frankly, that's only part of it. When you think about the resurrection and the other all that it implies, the mystery of God is the fact that God is reproducing himself, that we are made to be fully like God someday, that we really are made in God's image. And the world has always wondered. I know my old grandmother used to, a Methodist grandmother used to have this old song on her old Victrola, and I would go over to grandmother's house and she'd read me passages from the Bible, which was very helpful, frankly. It was good for me. And she'd play this old Victrola and some songs occasionally. Ah, sweet mystery of life, someday I'll find you. Great philosophers and thinkers and leaders have always wondered, why are we here? What's the mystery of life? What's it all about? Why does God allow men to suffer? Why do we die? Why aren't we, you know, on and on? That is the mystery. God has put us here to test us, to try us, to work with us, to fashion us, to mold us, to make us in his character finally. The mystery of God is that we are put here and go through this crucible of trials and tests and ups and downs to learn character, to finally then be worthy Well, Christ in us, at least, is worthy, and he makes us worthy in that general way of being fit to live forever in the very family of God. And God is reproducing himself. That is a wonderful, wonderful understanding. Only the church of God, descended from Mr. Armstrong, understands that. Some of you will read, some of you new people in the church out there, and some of you hear about the, they'll say, well, the Mormons believe that. No, they don't. They have a totally, totally different approach. I studied that in detail years ago. They think that they were already out there somewhere. They have invented the names like Kolob, K-O-L-O-B, a planet. They think they came from Kolob or somewhere and they kind of transmigrate through this human flesh and then they go back out there again. They don't understand what it's all about. They think the more kids you have here, the more people you'll have in your kingdom out in Kolob or some idea of, of eternity that they've invented. They don't say that Christ has to live his life in you, and you've got to grow in grace and in knowledge and develop Christ's full character through God's Spirit in you. They don't understand that at all. So their approach to becoming God is totally different from ours, totally different. And I can tell you as one who worked with Mr. Armstrong very, very closely, more than all these other guys put together that claim they knew him so well, I don't want to mention names, but I did. Before God, I know I did, no question about it. They don't even come close. Mr. Armstrong did not get this idea from the Mormons or anyone else. He did not. came right out of the Bible. And I could see how it came, because Dick had died, and, and no, it was, I'm sorry, that was, that was later, something else, a spirited man. But anyway, it began to hit him, and I was right in the meetings when he began to bring it out as he studied the Bible. So the mystery of God, hidden from ages and from generations, but now revealed to his saints... To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You'll find expressions like that throughout the New Testament. The hope of glory. What do you mean, glory? Wow! We are going to become God where our faces are going to shine like the sun. We can't imagine the kind of glory we will have. Because we are destined to be full members of the family of God. And when you read that passage that I turn to so often back in John 17, Christ's final prayer, John 17 in verses 21, 22, 23, then he said he's going to make them share that glory. The glory that God has given me, I have given you. You remember that? The glory Christ has given me, I have given you that same glory. And Christ is now sitting at the right hand of God. And the first chapter of Revelation shows us that Christ's face shines like the sun. That's the way your face is going to look and mine later if we make it into God's kingdom. If we can realize the calling that God has given us, it's a tremendous thing. People have wondered about that, yearned for that, prayed for that had great philosophical discussions about that over and over for thousands of years. Now we know God is reproducing himself. He's now revealed this to his saints. Verse 27, Now to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Christ lives in you, if he fully lives in you, then you become fully like Christ. You become a full son of God, just like Christ is a full son of God. Gentiles, which is the hope of glory. To him we preach, we preach Christ. We don't just preach about the kingdom. It's not wrong to preach about Christ. Him we preach. Warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom. We present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. It's Christ who lives his life in you. Again, my favorite verse, Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in you and me through the power of his Spirit. That's how we can overcome sin. That's how we can grow in grace and in knowledge. It's him doing it, him doing it in us. Well, I want you to know what great conflict or concern I have for those of Laodicea. Laodicea was near Colossae, over in the same area of, of, of uh, uh, Asia Minor, we call it today. They were sister churches. So I have great concern for them and for you and for those of Laodicea. And as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So again, they had not seen Paul in person. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, even though he hadn't seen them, he prayed for them, he wrote to them, he wanted to help them, he cried out to God for them, that they may make it, and their faith they might be knit together in love, attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. The mystery is about God, the Father and of Christ. Do you notice what's missing? Again, the Holy Spirit. (laughs) What a colossal insult against the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit's sitting there and Paul keeps leaving him out all the time. Well, he's not leaving him out if he were a person, but he's not a person. That's just an indirect proof, of course, one of the many proofs the Holy Spirit is not a person. Now this I say, lest anyone deceive you through persuasive words, for though I am absent in the flesh, I'm not with you right now, yet I'm with you in spirit. Rejoice you to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. Walk in Christ. Have Christ live His life in you. Rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith as you have been taught. They had some apparently faithful local elders. Abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware. Now listen carefully here, brethren. This is the difficult part as the world looks at it. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. He's using the normal Greek word for philosophy. Philosophia, it it literally is in the Greek language here. And empty deceit according to what? According to the laws of Moses that God himself gave through Moses on Mount Sinai? No! According to the tradition of men. Not what God gave. The tradition of men, Paul would not dare try to make fun of the law of God. Even the human laws, the the civil law of Moses, he never did that. These are the traditions of men according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. What did Christ think? Well, Christ said back in John 15, look it up, John chapter 15, verse 10, "...I have kept my Father's commandments." He didn't make fun of them. He followed them. He obeyed them, setting us an example. Paul continues For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The full nature of God was expressed in Christ. And you are complete in him. You see, as he lives in you, of course, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So they were not physically circumcised, they were Gentiles. They had not had their little baby boy circumcised, but you're circumcised spiritually by the circumcision of Christ. You have the fleshly, carnal part of your heart cut off, buried with him in baptism. Turn back to Romans chapter 6, Romans 6, verses 1 to 6. Were to be buried in baptism and be raised up like Christ was raised up from the dead. Were to come up out of the water a new man, a new creation. So we're buried. Our old self dies with Christ in a baptismal grave symbolically in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead, you Gentiles didn't even know God. You without God. You without hope, as it says in Ephesians, cut off from God, didn't even know the true God, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So this is not a Jewish problem he's talking about here. These are people who never knew about God or God's law, the God of the Bible. He has made a life together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. Here's the verse the Protestants really love. (laughs) Oh, they love this verse. They want to say that this verse means the Ten Commandments were nailed to the cross. Read it again. It does not say that. And, of course, when you understand the Greek expressions here, it does not even start to commence to say that. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, and even in the margin of my Bible printed in here by the editors, not me, certificate of debt. It says literally, the the Hebrew means certificate of debt. That's what it's talking about, a certificate of debt. Or IOU or note of indebtedness, different ways it can be worded, writing out the certificate of debt that was against us. The record of our sins, when a man was crucified, they normally, maybe it's a murder, they say, like it says here, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. But if it's a terrible murder, they'd say, this is John Jones, the terrible rapist. This is John Smith, the terrible murderer, or whatever. Excuse me, all you who are Smith and Jones. <laughs> you see what I mean. They, they wrote the accusation, and they nailed it right over the cross. That was the accusation that was made there. So Christ wiped out the record of our sins, which is the real reason Christ was nailed there. which was contrary to us. Why? Well, it put us under the death penalty. That's why he wiped out the note of guilt it can be translated that way. I've just been setting commentaries again this morning and they give various variations of that. The record of our sins, the note of guilt, the certificate of death, all these different translations are correct. Which was contrary. Of course that note of guilt meant meant we were it was contrary to us. Why? Well it brought us under the death penalty. Romans six twenty three. The wages of sin is death. You better believe it was contrary to us. It brought us under the death penalty. So what did Christ do? He paid the death penalty. And so what was the record that they put over him? Jesus Christ, the murderer? No. It really made, you remember why it made the, the Jews mad? They were hoping something bad would be put up there. Instead of that, Ty, Ty, uh, what Pilate wrote up there, the very thing they didn't want. He said, Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, and to them the King, the coming King, meant Messiah, too. Boy, that made them mad. That's the worst thing. And they said, well, they hollered, objected, it says. Read it. And he says, what I have written, I have written, you Jews, shut up. (laughs) He took care of the situation. He was a carnal man, but God used him to say what Christ really was. Yes, he was the coming Messiah. He was the King of the Jews. That was the accusation written on his cross, not Jesus Christ, the murderer. So they put his accusation up there. But normally, he took our record of our sins and nailed it to his cross. He took the record of our sins, and he paid the penalty and nailed it to his cross. He died in our stead, having disarmed principalities and powers, the demons, Satan's whole host that brought us down, that got us under the power of Satan by deceiving us by putting wrong attitudes in our minds, by causing this whole world to turn us away from God. Through Christ, we overcome that. So he disarmed them. He made a spectacle of them because they thought they finally won. They finally got God's own Son to die, and then no one else could reconcile us to God. But God raised him up again. He did not stay dead. He was alive three days and three nights later. And so he made a spectacle, triumphing over them. Therefore, let no one judge you. He doesn't say the Jews. Who are they dealing with here? A bunch of Gentiles with the philosophies of men. But when they were converted, what did they do coming out of the pagan religions around them? Well, they began to keep what? The weekly Sabbath day. What were the Gentiles keeping? They were keeping the day of the sun. They were keeping all these pagan days of Isis and Osiris and days we now call Easter and Christmas and other things like that. They had to come out of that, and they were being judged by the Gentiles for keeping the peace of God. So he says, don't let anyone judge you in eating or drinking, as it is normally translated, or regarding a festival. And here he is using the words would normally be God's holy days or a new moon or Sabbaths. Don't let any man judge you because you're worshiping on the Sabbath rather than the day of the sun, which are a shadow of things to come. How is that? Well, we know the holy days picture God's plan. The weekly Sabbath pictures the coming millennial 7,000 rule of Jesus Christ over this earth. They're a picture of things to come, which are a shadow of things to come. He says, don't let any man judge you, but the substance is of Christ. A very poor translation in here. Don't let any man judge you, but, as it is printed right in my Bible, if you want to look at it later, I didn't put it there, the Greek word here for substance, the Greek word is soma, S-O-M-A. It means body, literally. And back here in this same book by this same man, as we've already seen, he shows how the church is the body of Christ. but Chapter 1, verse 24, For the sake of the body, which is the church. And back in chapter uh, 1, Colossians 1, Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body. Don't let any man judge you regarding how you keep and what kind of food you eat and how you keep the Feast of Tabernacles or how you keep the Holy Days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body... The church of God, the body of Christ, is supposed to teach you to keep these things, and the church is to make the decisions as to how they're kept. We should not have every Tom, Dick, and Harry coming up and arguing, which they do occasionally, every generation or every five or ten years some more come up and argue about how to count Pentecost or how to count Passover or how to keep it. We have people way back... Uh, In the 19, uh, late 50s or early 60s, two brethren from Ohio, I remember the names, but I shouldn't mention, but they left us because they said we weren't having, we should have keeping the Feast of Tabernacles with palm branches. It says you're to go out and get palm branches. Well, we don't have palm branches all over. The whole principle, as given in the Old Testament, was to come apart from the world and worship God. And you don't have to do every single physical thing. You don't have to follow in Christ. We're to follow Christ. We're to follow Paul as he followed Christ. If that's the case, we better wear robes and sandals. We shouldn't be wearing our shoes and socks and, and all these heavy clothes here and so on. You see, we're to follow the principle of what they said, and the church is to guide how we do that. Don't let any man tell you how to keep the holy days, but... God does have government in the church. We're to learn that government. will respect Christ's rule over the church. But the body, soma, let the body of Christ. And that's the correct translation. Look it up. The same word he uses back in chapter 1, verse 18. The same word, the same apostle uses, meaning the church. The church is that body. Let no one defraud you of your reward. Don't let anyone cheat you out of your reward, brethren, Paul is saying. By taking delight in false humility, trying to go around with all kind of ascetic behavior, giving up, you know, fun and games in the right way, and worship of angels. Don't let anyone get you into worshiping angels or demons, you know, getting to seances or spiritism or the occult, as they were doing back then. Intruding into those things which he's not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. As the commentaries say, they were getting into kind of a a pre-Gnostic type of religion, and most experts really don't know exactly what it was. All they know is what they read here and some other things that were being done in the world at that time. So we know the pagans were getting into various things where they would worship spirits, they would worship angels, and Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Another thing, of course, in the early uh, pagan religions... They went to one extreme, and then later many of the pagans went to the other extreme into asceticism. And they were so holy that they had the, the uh, 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 holy men living up on, on, on the top of a tree or up in a cave, and they were uh, I'm trying to think of the name of it. But anyway, they would completely cut themselves off from the world, and they wouldn't have any, any contact with a the woman. They thought if they even got near a woman, that was a sin, they might have an evil thought. Well, frankly, you can have an evil thought. Most of you men know if you're in a cave or a raft out in the middle of the ocean. You can have an evil thought. But they thought somehow they were going to protect themselves that way. So they invented all these wrong things. They thought the body was intrinsically evil. They thought that sex was intrinsically evil, which it is not. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with the young man thinking a young woman's beautiful. She is and wanting to marry her eventually and have her be his help and her companion and the wife of his children. Nothing wrong with that. It's just if he gets in detail about it and directly thinking about sex before marriage, that's wrong. But to think about the basic things like that, her beauty and her desirability, that's not wrong. So therefore he says, don't get yourself into this kind of asceticism and not, verse 19, holding fast to the head. Don't Do that crazy ascetic stuff, but which keeps you away from Christ, the head from whom the whole body is nourished together by joints and ligaments grows with increase, which is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, the pagan ideas, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Notice the regulations. Do not touch. Do not taste. Do not handle. Now, God, some of the Protestants can get a play on that, of course, because back in the Old Testament, it does tell you not to handle dead bodies or certain things that were unclean. But in this context, with what the pagans were doing, they were not completely even to touch a woman. They would... uh, Oh, my, it makes me mad. I can't think of it. They live up on, some of the men live up on, on, on pillars. They call them pillar saints. That's it. They live on top of a pillar all by themselves. And literally, some of them go blind. Many of them. There were hundreds of them back in that time, maybe thousands that did that. They thought that would make them holy, not even getting close to a woman, to touch her or to even see her up close. And I guess they had to pass their refuse down out in the basket, which would be pretty nasty, and all the rest of it. But that's what they did. They thought that was holy. Do not touch. It's not wrong to touch a woman when you're unmarried. It's not wrong to hold hands occasionally or to dance with a young woman or hold her in your arms. It's just wrong to lust after her. Don't add too many do's and don'ts to what God said. If we start adding lots of do's and don'ts, we get in trouble. I found that now in the church for 64 years. Don't do it. It always ends up bad. So if you died from this, why, as though living in the world, are you trying to say, "Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle," which all perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men? Men have put things in there and their their ascetic religion of asceticism. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom; they look good on the surface in, in self-imposed religion. False humility, it's not what God said, and neglect of the body. Some of them would starve themselves and damage their body by these these practices. They are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Often people go to that extreme and then they go right back to the other extreme later, which we've seen many times even in the church of God. If you then were raised with Christ, in other words, you've come up out of the watery grave in baptism... Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Christ is right now sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Please learn to do this. Fellas and girls, you young people especially, it's hard to do. You're surrounded by each other and and wanting to have fun and all that. But get your mind on the things above, not just things on the earth. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your real life is in Christ living within you. When Christ, who is our life, if we walk with Christ, talk with Christ, drink into this book, pray to God, meditate, then He lives His life in us. Then we have more of His mind in every facet of our lives. And we walk with God. We walk with God more fully. When Christ, who is our life, appears, and he will appear, yes, it's going to happen when you see all these things terrible, it's terrible what's happening, but that means the kingdom of God is that much closer when he appears, then he says, you will appear with him in glory. You're going to be glorified, member of the kingdom of God. It will all be worth it. Therefore, put to death your members, the wrong use of your members, he's showing here on earth, fornication illicit sex before marriage, uncleanness, which should include certainly, obviously, you know, pornography and and, uh, adultery and homosexual attitudes, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, always wanting more and more. You deserve this, they had to tell you. Get your mind on physical things, they tell you. Don't do that. Because of these things, the wrath of God, God's own wrath is coming on the sons of disobedience in which you also once walked when you lived in them. You were just filled with that way of life. But now you also must put off all these. Get rid of these things, Paul says. Anger. Don't be angry at people all the time. That's going to hurt you. It doesn't hurt the one you're angry at. It just hurts you. It gives you altars. It'll give you high blood pressure. It'll give you heart disease, all kinds of things. Don't let that anger get hold of you. Get rid of it. Pray to God to get it out of there. Wrath, malice, uh, blasphemy, filthy language, being cheapening in the way that you talk and act, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. You've come up out of the watery grave with Christ. Let Christ live in you. Cry out for Christ to live in you, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Christ is the one who created us. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, it doesn't make any difference in Christ. Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, Christ is all And in all. And that's a wonderful statement when you really think about it. Christ is all and in all. He's the end and the beginning. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering. Learn to be kind and loving, forgiving to one another. Bearing with one another. Forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. And brethren, that's such an important thing. That's one thing a lot of God's people have a problem with. They just won't forgive each other fully. Please learn to do that. Get it out. Get rid of it. Forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. And God tells us back in, in Matthew If you don't forgive others, God will not forgive you. Boy, that's a strong statement. If you don't learn to forgive others from the heart, God will not forgive you. Learn to do that. Get rid of it. But above all these things, put on love, the real love of God, to love God with all your heart and strength and mind, and to really genuinely love your neighbor as yourself, and genuinely think, how can I best serve this fellow human being? This fellow human being made in God's image, how can I help his life to be more rich and more full? So that's what God wants us all to do. Put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God, God's real peace, rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ, this word in this book right here, let it dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. A lot of times in the early church there in Pasadena, we had hymn singing, and I think we have some here too occasionally in various activities, but that's good. Up in the camp, they had hymn singing, I think, on the Sabbath morning, as they used to an ambassador. Just reading and singing those words of God are really encouraging. Singing the way, uh, psalms of God. Singing with your grace and your hearts to the Lord. And here's a key verse, verse 17. Whatever you do, if you get married, if you have a job, it doesn't make any difference. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name by the authority of Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank God for this beautiful young woman who's been willing to leave her home and be your help, your companion the rest of your natural life. Love her, cherish her, protect her. And protect and encourage her, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, and so on. Encourage her, build her. And the wife trying to help and build and strengthen her husband. Give each other to each other in every way and to all the brethren. Help and serve them in that way. Do all in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Don't make your husband try to argue with you. Try to just say, yes, dear, (laughs) the two best words. Husbands are taught to do that, but wives are to do that, too. And and wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. If your wife is not perfect and argues or does things bad, do not be bitter toward them. Some men just get bitter, and they want to leave their wives or put her down. That's wrong. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Don't push your children too hard, too fast. Be patient. Be thoughtful, lest they become discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters. Obey your bosses and here in the work. Obey your supervisors or those working with you. Have the attitude. They're servants of God, and they're not perfect, and nobody's perfect, and I'm not perfect, and Mr. Ames is not perfect, and none of us are perfect. The only one perfect is Christ. But learn to submit to an imperfect boss. Learn to submit to an imperfect leader as long as it doesn't break God's commandments directly. And then God will bless you for that. If you get to be the boss, you're going to not be perfect either. Think about it. (laughs) What if you're made the supervisor? Will you be a perfect supervisor? No. Obeying all things, your leaders, your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but sincerely trying to honor the office of Honor the office that God has set, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily. Remember back in the Old Testament why God tells us back there, uh, whatever you do, do with all your might. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever you do, do it heartily. God wants it to get completely on one side or the other. And if you're with God, get all the way with God. Give your life to God. Make it a big deal with your whole being. Serve your Creator And know that he will be then for you 100% and bless you in that way. That's what he wants. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. You directly serve the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he who does wrong will be paid for the wrong which he's done. Yes, God takes care of it. I've seen that again and again in the 64 years I've been connected with the church. Those who crack down on others or hurt me, And didn't ever get over it. They were dealt with by God himself. It's amazing how God always, it all gets around eventually. What, as they say, what goes around comes around. It always does. Always does. And God takes care of it. And there is no partiality. And now we're coming here to the last chapter. And we don't have as many technical things. So I can go a little faster here. Masters or bosses, give your servants what is just and fair. We should pay you fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. If you have your own business, pay them and pay them on time. Continue earnestly in prayer, constantly pray, being vigilant in it, very alert to pray for all the things that are coming along. Meanwhile, praying also for us, Paul writes, that God would open to us a door. God wants us to go through different doors of television and the Internet, to increase our circulation of the magazine, hard copy, and even online. Get this message out all over the world with increasing power that God would open a door of the Word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I'm also in chains. He reminds them, I'm in a chain. I'm a Roman slave, a Roman prisoner over here in Rome, that I might speak, make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Have wisdom when you deal with the carnal mind, redeeming the time. Let them know you have purpose in life. Don't argue with them, but you may have salt in your speech, as he says. Let your speech always be with grace, with wisdom and kindness, but seasoned with salt. Have a sense of purpose in what you say, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Then he gets to personal greetings. Tychicus, (coughs) who is a beloved brother and faithful minister, in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. (coughs) With Onesimus, remember Onesimus was a runaway slave. Paul talks about in Philemon, a faithful and beloved brother who was one of you. So Onesimus was originally from Colossae, who was one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. <clears throat> Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, so Paul was in prison, reached you with Marcus, the, the, the cousin of Barnabas, or nephew, it perhaps should be, sister, son, about whom you have received instruction. If he comes, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, a number of people were named Jesus back then. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who of the circumcision. They were Jews who were helping Paul. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a fellow Gentile from Colossae, a servant of Christ, notice this, reached you always laboring fervently. You can picture him down on his knees. Help my brethren, help my brethren, guide them, rebuke Satan, heal so-and-so, bless so-and-so, deliver so-and-so. He was laboring fervently for them in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a zeal for you and those in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, is God against doctors in every case? No. He calls Luke the beloved physician. And, of course, back in Matthew 9 and verse 12, why Jesus said, in Matthew chapter 9, try to keep your place here and turn there, or I'll just read it to you. Matthew 9 and verse 12, he said here, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He didn't say the physician is wrong. There are certain things a physician can do. you just got to be sure that you don't have them doing all things that are not good. But he does talk about Luke, the beloved physician, and it's hard to get the balance. <clears throat> and Demas, greet you. Greet the brethren in Laodicea, a nearby city, and Nymphas, and the church in his house. So this man had a church right in his home. And brethren, sometimes we get the feeling that the apostolic church was a great big church with thousands of members all over. Well, there were thousands of them in Jerusalem, but scattered around the Roman Empire were many, many dozens of little home churches, much smaller than we have here, obviously. People, maybe just 20 or 30, 40 people meeting in someone's home, all over. Home churches. A church in his house. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see it's read also in the church of the Laodiceans. Spread these letters around. Share them that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So Paul apparently wrote them a letter, and God did not choose to put that letter in the New Testament. That's interesting. God guided those to put the messages in here that we needed. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry of which you've received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Kind of a final joke to this young man. <laughs> Be sure you fulfill your ministry, John or George or Archippus, he says right at the end here. This salutation, so the salutation in these letters comes at the end, by my own hand. So Paul would write out a final few phrases in his own handwriting. Maybe he had the same problem that I do. His handwriting wasn't too good, I don't know. But he'd write it right at the end in his own hand and dictate the rest. Paul, remember my chains a second time. Please remember, brethren, I'm in prison. And I could say to you sometimes, remember my stroke. My chains are not being in a Roman prison with chains, but having to be helped up and down and being tired and have to push myself harder. So I can say, remember my chains too, (laughs) but remember the chains of all of us, because some of you are suffering more than I am. And my wife is in danger, of course, in her health and others, and they need our prayers. Remember those who are suffering. Grace be with you. May God's grace, may God's mercy, may God's love be with you. Amen. So that's what Paul wrote, and that's a marvelous letter when you think about all these things that tell us how to forgive each other, to love each other, to pray for each other, and all the technical things he said as well. And I hope I've made it a little bit more clear to you than in your own study. So go over your notes, and I hope you then could explain these things to others so they can deeply understand these awesome epistles that God Almighty preserved now for 2,000 years in the New Testament.